we're going to go through the scripture. Our scripture reading is from Genesis 2:25 through 3:7, and that's on page two in your pew Bible. As always, we really want you to have a Bible, and so if you don't have one, please just take that one in the pew for um, as a gift from us. Genesis 2:25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. My name is Bill Gorman. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and we're really thankful that you're here with us this morning. And as we take a look at this passage of scripture that Holly just read for us, I want to begin uh, with a little bit of a, a thought experiment for you. And uh, I want to begin it with this question uh, for the thought experiment. And that would, would you let me have sort of absolute control over your life? Can, can I run your life? Would you give me control over everything, your, your time, your relationships, uh, your money, uh, what you wear, what you eat, uh, when you sleep, everything? I promise I'm not trying to start a cult. Um, but, but would you give me control over everything? And, and you know what, because you know what, Frank, I feel like I could do a better job than you're doing. If you just gave it all to me, let me run it, um, I, I could do a better job than you're doing. Now imagine most of you would probably say, okay, I'm not, I don't think I'd be comfortable with that, Bill. Um, I, don't, I don't know why. Why not? Um, maybe I'm not wise enough. Am I not loving enough? Do I not know you well enough to make all the decisions for your best? And okay, that's, that's probably fair. I don't know you well enough. I'm probably not the best person to run your life. But what about you? When you think about that question, is there any human being that you would give that kind of control to in your life? And, and I guess you would probably, for most of us, say, no, I, there's no human being that I'm going to give that kind of control over in my life. But isn't that the kind of control that you want over your life? I know it's the kind of control I want over my life, absolute control over everything, that I want to be God in my life. I want absolute power and control over every part. In fact, really, this is kind of the number one goal of our culture, isn't it? How we've defined what the good life is to have perfect control and freedom over our lives, to be able to do whatever we want, whenever we want. Complete and total freedom in all things that no one can tell me what to do with my life or my time or my money or my body. I have absolute control. 
which is really basically to say that we wish that we were God, or at least the God of our own life. Are, are you with me? Are you following here? That I want to be more than I am, which is what every human being has ever wanted more than anything else. That every one of us believes and lives as if the very best person to run our lives is us. Yet, if you wouldn't let me run your life, if you wouldn't let anyone else run your life, what makes me, what makes us think that, that we can do such a great job of it? It's like we immediately see the flaw of that when it's someone else running our lives. But somehow when we look at that of our, at ourselves, we think, no, well, I've got this. I'm not going to make the mistakes that the other people would if they were running my life. But listen, this desire to be God, to play God in our lives, to be more, in the end, only makes us less. Our longing to be more than human actually makes us less than human. And it only leads to shame, which leads to misery, which leads to death. When we try to be more than God makes us to be, we try to take His place we actually end up less than we were intended to be. And, and this isn't a new temptation. In fact, it is the original temptation and at the heart of every temptation since. And if we un to understand, if we want to understand our, our sin, our shame, our temptations, we have to go back, all the way back to the original one. And for the past seven weeks or so that we've been in Genesis together, we've just been sort of camped out, focused on Genesis chapters 1 and 2, looking at uh, that part of the story, where everything is as it ought to be, where God has created the world full of beauty and goodness and wholeness. Everything works like it's supposed to. Relationships are in harmony. Nothing is, is broken. All of the human's relationships to their creator to one another, to them, even within themselves, their knowledge and, and relationship to themselves, to the created world around them, they all function exactly like they're supposed to. Like even now, we feel like it ought to. Because right? every one of us has some kind of, it's almost like a deep memory of the garden. A, a, a deep sense of what ought to be, even though it isn't that way anymore, we, we seem to have a memory of how it was. It's faint, but we know it's not what it's supposed to be now. And last week in the message, and, and especially this week, we begin to see why. Because in Genesis chapter 3, everything changes. We move from the world as it ought to be over here to the world now as it is, the world in which we actually live today. And this story in Genesis 3 is the most heartbreaking story that has ever been told. And we want to look at it together afresh this morning. As we do, we want to draw out sort of three uh, observations along the way as we go through this story. And the contrast you immediately see between chapter 2, the, the final verse of chapter 2, and the beginning of chapter 3 is, is dramatic. Because notice how chapter 2 ends. And, and I, I, I think I've missed this for a long time because of the chapter break there. You have to know where the, how the end of chapter 2 frames chapter 3. Because in our Bibles, the, uh, 
the, the scriptures themselves are, are inspired, but the, the verses and the chapter markings, those were added later just for convenience to help us to all be able to find the same spot and know which, which part of the Bible we're talking about. But those chapter breaks, those aren't inspired. But it's easy sometimes to just pick, I'll start reading in chapter 3 and we don't really look at what happened right before in chapter 2. But it's absolutely essential to understand this because what they feel right now in verse 25 is about to be lost forever. Both the man and his wife, verse 25, chapter 2, were naked yet felt no shame. No shame. Now, there are lots of ways that the author could have concluded that scene. That they were happy and fulfilled that they were joyful and fruitful. But notice the particular word that he chooses. They were naked and not ashamed. There was no shame. This is how the author ends the scene. Yes, they were, they were naked physically, but more than that, they were exposed, vulnerable, no secrets, everything seen, everything known. And yet in that state of being fully known, completely vulnerable, there's no shame. And yet we feel shame, not just daily, but we feel shame as sort of the, the, the background music, the soundtrack of our lives. And, and by shame, I don't just mean the guilt of feeling like, oh, I, I made a mistake or I did something wrong, but, but shame is this pervasive sense of I am not enough. I am not enough. We know this feeling, but not Adam and Eve. Not yet. So chapter 2 ends. There is no shame. Then look at how chapter 3 opens. Now the serpent, who is the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made, he said to the woman, did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? Now, before we go any further, we, we need to pause here to say, for us as 21st century readers in our culture, this whole talking serpent thing seems really bizarre. Now, as a kid, I, I actually, I loved snakes. Um, I was really into snakes. There was even a time when I, I really wanted to become a, a herpetologist, which is someone who studies snakes and reptiles. Um, I went to the zoo. I interviewed one. Obviously, I didn't end up going down that career path. Um, my mom never let me actually own a snake at the house, um, kind of... I don't know why she didn't want want snakes in the house. But uh, what what is going on here then, though? What's happening with this snake in the garden? If God created a a good world, where is this this serpent coming from? Where is this evil coming from? And and we can't address all of that this morning in this conversation. Perhaps actually the best resource that I know, if you want to dig into that a little bit, is the, the Bible Project has a series of videos called um, about spiritual beings. So if you just Google the Bible Project, spiritual beings, there's three or four videos that they have that are so well done that I think will help you get at trying to comprehend what the Bible talks about um, in the whole of the story of the scriptures about where does this evil serpent come from. But one thing we can say for sure this morning is that while the Bible does not give us a lot of detail about how evil arrived into the world. It does give us a definitive answer that evil will not survive in the world. So it doesn't tell us a lot about the, sur- the arrival of evil, but it does give a definitive answer about the survival evil that it will be crushed one day. 
Because what's clear from Genesis, no matter how you understand it, is that there is an unseen war going on around us all the time. There is real evil, and a real evil that is seeking to destroy and to defeat God and his purposes, a real evil that is seeking to destroy us, and that that evil is personal. It's one of the distinctions that you see in Genesis. This evil is personal. It has a voice. It can speak. And when it speaks, it sounds like this. The serpent, the evil one, said to the woman, did God really, did God actually say, you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, uh, we may eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden, but the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, and neither shall you touch it lest you die. Now, the Bible is actually unique in giving an origin story for evil like this. Most of the other ancient Near Eastern accounts of origins or the creation of the world, they just assume that evil has always existed and is always a part of the world. But the Bible is different. It actually has the story about how does evil enter into creation and begin to interact with humans in the world. It tells us why and how evil enters. And it all begins with a conversation about God. The serpent and Eve start talking about God, and that causes Eve to doubt, and then ultimately to reject God's word. Because you see, every temptation, it begins with a question. The question, who is enough? Who is enough? Eve, is God enough? Eve, are, are you enough? Who is enough? Because the servant says, did, did God really say, did God really say you couldn't eat from any of the tree in the garden? Wow, he's, he's really holding out on you. He's not even giving you the basic things you need to live, Eve. How are you going to survive? You can't eat from any tree in the garden? You see what the evil one is doing in this moment? He, he begins to question, to undermine what God has said back in chapter 2, which is that all of the trees in the garden, except for the one, were theirs to eat, to enjoy, to, to have. They could eat from any tree except for one. And in the process, the serpent begins to question the goodness of God, begins to question the provision. And this is what temptation always does. There's so many good choices, and yet it focuses on the one thing that's forbidden. God has given us enough and so much more beyond, but then we wonder, but has he really? Is there something better that he hasn't given us that he's holding back? And Eve says, well, no, we can, we can eat from any of these trees, but, but we're dead if we even touch that one. And notice that she actually adds that language about touching. When you go back into Genesis chapter 1 and 2, when God gives this, this command about the tree, he doesn't say anything about, about touching it, right? I mean, they could have, I guess they could have built a treehouse in it if they wanted to. There's no, there's no language that God gives about not touching the tree, only that they shouldn't eat from it. But again, taking that cue from the serpent... Eve now is beginning to make God more restrictive. He's less good. And we can't even, we can't even touch it. He doesn't even want us to touch it. And the seed of doubt grows. 
maybe what God has provided isn't enough. Maybe I, maybe I do need more. Maybe he isn't as good as I thought. And then the, the evil one, he moves. This is in the short conversation from, from questioning, from sort of suggesting to direct lying in verse 4. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God lied to you. You won't die. And friends, this is what the evil one does. He lies. I'm going to fast forward real quick, way forward in the story to Jesus for a moment. Because I want you to hear how Jesus, God himself in human, fully God, fully human, with us on earth, how he describes the evil one. This is John chapter 8. He, the evil one, was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. And I love the language, this is the NIV, I love the language here. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We can't believe anything that the serpent says. He speaks his native language of lies. Eve God is not good. He is not enough. And, and then, he, then he takes a, a slightly different approach next. He says, actually, Eve, and you know what? You are not enough either. God made you with something missing. But I can give you that missing piece. What you're missing, what you don't, Eve, you don't have enough. You're missing, but you can get it on this tree. You're not enough, but this tree will give you it. It will make you enough. You see, God is the only one up until this point in the story who has defined good and evil. Have you, if you've been with us through these weeks, maybe you've noticed that God is the only one in the story up until this point who has declared things good, 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 Adam being alone, not good, good. He's the one who has defined right and wrong, good and evil. The serpent says to Eve, you should have that power too. You should be able to define right and wrong for yourself, good and evil. God made a mistake when he made you that he didn't give you that power. In fact, you think that he's close to you, that he really loves you? No, he's not. He doesn't. He doesn't want you to have the same kind of power. He doesn't want you to be like him. You're not enough, Eve. The evil one constantly whispers, you don't have enough money. You're not successful enough. You're not a good enough parent. No one could possibly love you, not if they really knew you. You could only be happy if. This is the story of every temptation, every sin. And just like us, Eve says, you're right. You're right. I need to decide good and evil for myself. I need to be my own God. I'm not enough. I need to be enough by turning away from God and making myself enough on my own. Because we, we were talking as a teaching team about how, at one level, how ridiculous the story could sound as if the, the, this tree in the middle of the garden somehow was like God's sort of, you know, secret snack shack. And, and the, the, the big sin is that Eve like stole a snack out of the, 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 the cupboard. But that's not it at all, right? What happens in this moment is that Eve is now choosing to do what only God is to do, which is to define good and evil. This sin and every sin is a rejection of God as the one who defines good and evil. 
a rejection ultimately of our own humanity. Uh, Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Shame, has, has helped me uh, immensely in this area. He's a, a psychiatrist, an expert in neuroscience, uh, also knows the scriptures really, really well as a follower of Jesus. He's actually going to come and be with us uh, here in Christ Community next year in 2020. We just booked that. I'm really excited he's going to come and, and teach us. And he writes this in The Soul of Shame. He says, shame is the primary tool that evil leverages, out of which emerges everything that we would call sin. Its power lies in its subtlety and in its silence, and it will not be satisfied until all hell breaks loose. Literally. The reason that you don't feel like you're enough is because you were never meant to be enough. Not on your own not without God. And yet because we try to keep taking, keep trying to take his place, trying to be all on our own, trying to be more on our own apart from him, all hell is breaking loose in our world. So the question as we get to the end of verse 5 is this, is she, is Eve going to trust God or is she going to trust the snake? Because we are all trusting something. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took, she ate, she gave to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is the moment that everything breaks. And do you see that even in in that verse 6? For the first time, she decides on her own what is good. God has told them, it's not good for you to eat from this tree. You should not eat from this tree. But notice in verse 6, she saw that the tree was what? Good for food. God didn't say that. She's defining good for herself now. This is good for food. And and it's also good to look at and and it can make me wise. God was wrong. He was wrong when he defined what is good. I am right. I can be more without him. And in that moment is the moment that we as humanity, that we give the middle finger to God and say, you are wrong. And I would rather have this than you. I'd rather have this and never be in relationship with you again. You can almost hear the world to start to crumble around them. I tried to imagine this week, and it was, it was a really painful thought experiment, but I just tried to imagine what were those first moments like after they ate? I, 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 just, I couldn't even begin to wrap my mind. Like, everything is now lost. And they they do this together, Adam and Eve together, the very ones who had been commissioned by God in chapters 1 and 2 to guard and to cultivate, protect the garden, to make it all that they could be. Instead, they reject God and they invite evil into the garden. What they were supposed to keep out, what they were supposed to guard against, they invite in and they join it. They become collaborators with it. And like that, just in that instance, it's as if a, a dam breaks And flood of shame comes rushing in. You see it in verse 7. Watch the progression. 
First, you're going to see they, they know evil now for the first time. We were never meant to know evil. And yet now they know it. And then in that moment of, of knowing evil, they realize their vulnerability and weakness. They are naked and the garden now is no longer a safe place to be naked. Because the garden is now a place where evil is, where shame is. This is not a place of safety anymore. This is not a place where you can be vulnerable anymore. They feel shame and then they hide. So see this, it, it's so concise in verse 7, all that happens. Then the eyes, verse 7, were both, the, both the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They'd seen each other for who they've just become. Knowledge of good and evil, and they see they have joined the side of evil. This is that, that moment when you've done something truly awful, words that you can't take back, a relationship ruined, and you just want to hide. This is the first moment that anyone has ever felt that. Masakato in his painting, The Expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden, he captures with Brilliance, kind of the depth and pain and shame with heart-wrenching vividness. I've reflected on this painting a lot in the last several weeks. It was part of a, a Lenten devotional that I did. I wonder if you've felt the emotions that he portrays in that painting. I know that I have. And when we do... We, we scramble. We try desperately to handle ourselves, to solve it on our own, to hide. They, they, they grab leaves. They try in vain to cover what they've done. But the hiding only takes them further away. And God comes looking for them, walking in the garden, wanting to talk with them, to be with them, but they're hiding. They won't look God in the eye anymore. I, I think about this with our, with our kids when they're caught in guilt or shame. They will not look me in the eye. As much as I might plead with them to or even tell them, you need to look, look at me, look at my eyes. They won't do it. I want them so desperately to look in my eyes, yes, to see the seriousness of, of, what, I, of what they've done, but also the depth of love, the, the invitation to relationship. But they hide. And I do the same thing. When I'm caught in those moments of feeling shame, I, I can't look the other person in the eye. We hide. Then God asks, where are you? Where are you? And not because he doesn't know the answer, right? This is not a question of does God, is he like really doesn't know where Adam and Eve are. He, of course he knows where they are, but, but every question, every question is an invitation to relationship. And so he asks, where are you? He's inviting them back. Where are you? Answer me. And Adam said, I, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself fear and shame. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? 
And again, God knows the answers to these questions. He knows what they've done, but with each question is another chance how desperately God wants us. Even if the answer is ugly, he wants us to say it in relationship with him. He's calling us back with these questions. Imagine if in that moment we had run to him rather than continue to hide. I'm sorry, we didn't, we didn't listen. Now we feel everything. I, I don't want to know evil anymore. Make it stop. You are enough. We'll never do it again. I wonder what would have happened in the story if that's what had been their response to the questions of God. But is that what you do when you're caught in your sin? It's not, not what I do. No, I do exactly what my first parents did. I hide and then I blame. Verse 12. The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And do you see now how our attempts to be more literally ruin everything? Our attempts to be more only make us less. Because sin is not just breaking a rule. Sometimes I think we get this idea in our minds that, that sin is like, there's some like moral law code in the universe and in a book somewhere and that sin is just breaking one of the rules. And that's part of it. But sin is a power. It's a personal power. And when we sin, we become collaborators with that power. We as human beings have gone over to the other side, to the side of evil, to the side that we all, part of us, that we, that we hate. Right? Think of your favorite book, your favorite movie. The one that has this, this, the, the most evil protagonist in it. The character that you just, you cannot stand them. You hate them and all that they do. We've joined that side. We've become collaborators with that power. The side of Sauron and the orcs, of Voldemort and the Death Eaters, the side of the White Witch, the side of Emperor Palpatine. We have gone over to the side of evil. We are now collaborators with the power of sin. Every relationship is broken. Our relationship with God, we hide. Our relationship within ourselves, we swing wildly now between pride, thinking way too highly of ourselves, or self-loathing of I'm the worst. All the while, though, constantly obsessed with ourselves rather than focused on others. Our relationships with other people, we, we put up walls, we hide, we hurt them. Our relationships with the world, we now extract instead of cultivate and the consequences that unfold go to the heart of our purpose and commissioning to be fruitful and to multiply productivity, procreativity. We now try to play God in one another's lives. There's strife and competition in relationships. The work of productivity and procreativity are now marked by pain and suffering and hardship and thorns and thistles and sweat and toil. You think the very places that in God's good design we're meant to be places where we find the most joy and delight and satisfaction, relationships and work, those are now plagued by this power, that lying, poisoning power that we have become collaborators with. No matter how hard we try, 
our, our fig leaf escape attempts, they're useless. And this is what sin is. It's trying to make ourselves more, telling God that we know better. Every act of greed, every moment of lust, every hurtful word, every selfish deed, a declaration, a declaration that we have chosen to define good and evil for ourselves. Trying to be more, becoming less. And in the next eight chapters of Genesis that we're going to look at, they are, the author shows us what happens. It's a wrenching downward spiral as the lies of the snake and the rebellion of the humans multiplies and compounds with each generation, with each expansion of the human population in the world. We're going to see murder, enslavement of others, polygamy, death, it all spirals down, down, down. So just a heads up, these next few weeks of sermons are going to be dark. Just wanted to give you, that's, this is where it's going, that's the purpose of, of these chapters in Genesis, to show us what happens when we make ourselves God, when we define good and evil for ourselves. So yes, they are going to be dark, but not without hope. Because friends, we live on the other side of Easter. And with the Easter moment, there is always hope. With the creator, redeemer, God of the universe, there is always hope. Do you believe that this morning? Even here, even in this darkest moment of the story, God is making promises, making provision. And you see it in at least two places. Even here in Genesis chapter 3, you see it in two places. First, you see it in verse 15. God speaking to the serpent, declaring a curse, a punishment on the evil one. He says this in verse 15. I will put hostility between you, the serpent, and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring, he will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And I love this print. It captures it beautifully. It's titled, Mary Comforts Eve. Mary who would bear Jesus, the Son of God, to the world, comforting the one to whom the promise was given that one day the offspring of the woman would crush the snake. You see, I love the, the, that detail of the snake wrapped around her leg, but it's under Mary's foot. A promise. There's going to be one who's going to defeat evil. Jesus, the offspring of the woman, truly human, truly and fully God also. The one who the serpent would strike, but the one who would crush the serpent once and for all. That's the first place. The second place you see it is in verse 21. And the Lord God made clothing from skins for the man and his wife, and he clothed them. And this leads us to our third and final observation this morning. We need to let God be enough because he's the only one who can cover you. Let God be enough because he is the only one who can cover you. You see, you were never meant to live this life in your own power and strength. Apart from him, you are not enough, but in him you have all that you need. And that's true both now in this moment in the midst of the fallenness and the brokenness of the world and forever. Here in this moment, an animal dies 
to provide covering for them. They wear on their bodies. I've never thought about this before this week, but they wear on their bodies for the rest of their lives, Adam and Eve, God's provision, His promise of covering. Every day as they toil outside the garden, as they sweat, as they live in pain, their bodies are covered. They felt on their skin two great truths. The great cost of sin and the incredible depth and great love that God has for them. For one day, God himself, Jesus, fully God, fully human, would come. God himself would take all the penalties and consequences of sin. Jesus is the true and better Adam. He goes into the garden. Do you remember how the gospel started? Maybe if you're new to the Bible, you've not read these stories, but at the beginning of the gospels, Jesus is taken out into the wilderness. He's tempted for 40 days. Adam and Eve, they don't last 40 minutes. Jesus for 40 days is tempted by the evil one. He never gives in. And he becomes our example of a life empowered by the Spirit. When we have the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we too can resist temptation like Jesus did. On the cross, Jesus received all the curses of sin, all the consequences of sin as our substitute. He takes our place. On the cross, he despises shame and sets us free, forgiving us. In his victorious resurrection from the dead, he crushes the head of the snake, triumphing over death by death. Friends, this morning, Jesus is calling to you. He's asking each and every one of us, where are you? Where are you? Give up on your fig leaves. Stop hiding. He's calling you to come to him and rest. Rest from all of your scrambling. Rest from all of your hiding. Stop hiding from him. And start hiding in him. Cast down your deadly hiding. Down at Jesus' feet. And stand in him alone, gloriously complete. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for each and every one of us today that by the power of your spirit, that you would make us new and that you would give us the power to come out of hiding and into relationship with you and into relationship with others, which is where we so often experience the power of your love? Would you make Christ's community a place where there is not hiding, where there is not shame, but where together we, we despise shame? We name it for what it is. We love one another as Jesus has loved us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, each week together we celebrate communion. As a, as a tangible reminder, a celebration of the provision, the fulfillment of the promises from Genesis chapter 3, that the snake crusher has come, that he has triumphed, that he has forgiven. And so this morning as we do that together, I just want to give you some instructions on how we do that together. There are four stations around the room. There's two in the back on either side. There's two here in the front on either side. And all of the stations have gluten-free communion elements, so you can go to any station and receive communion there. Um, they all have gluten-free elements. 
um, this morning. When you do gather around the, the server, gather in groups of, of four, five, six, seven people, take the piece of the, the communion cracker and dip it into the juice. And then when everyone in your group has done that, then partake together. Part of the reason we do it in groups is because it's a picture of this community that the gospel creates. It doesn't just restore our relationship with God vertically, but it also restores our relationships with one another horizontally. And forgiveness and openness and vulnerability. So partake together. Uh, Anyone who is here this morning who would declare themselves, yes, I am a great sinner, but I am trusting in a great Savior, welcome, come and celebrate with us. You don't have to be a formal member of our church in any significant way. Um, If you're here this morning and say, I don't know if I'm comfortable saying that about myself, or this is so new to me, I don't know if I'm comfortable participating in this moment, that is totally fine. We're so glad that you're here with us. And I would just invite you during this time to listen for Jesus' invitation, to step out of hiding, to come to him in relationship. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread, and after blessing it, which is what he did with all of creation in the beginning, called it good. After blessing it, he broke it, which is what we did, and he gave it to them and said, eat, take, eat, this is my body. And in the same way, after supper, he took a cup, And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood, my blood. This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Brothers and sisters, we no longer have to hide because Jesus' blood shed for us and the new covenant has covered us completely. So come now, when the servers are in place, to taste, to touch, to savor the covering of sin, the washing away of shame. Come when you're ready.